coronavirus is upending our lives and reshaping society. In this podcast, The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, we're hard at work producing new episodes that speak to the current challenges. But we also thought that this was a moment to go back through our archive of more than 100 conversations and bring you some of our favourites. Coronavirus threatens our mental well-being as well as our physical health. The challenge is to use this moment to the fullest, to think more deeply about where our lives are going and how we can live with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. Today we bring you a conversation with teacher Eddie Wu on the joy of maths. I just absolutely fell in love with the idea of seeing students at this very formative age. They enter high school at age 12. They leave roughly at 18. And the amount of transformation they've gone through during that time is phenomenal. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Eddie Wu has been called the Kim Kardashian of maths teaching. His WooTube channel has hundreds of thousands of subscribers from around the world. As Australia's local hero for 2018, he's managed what some would have thought impossible. Eddie has made maths cool. I'm chatting with Eddie in Canberra, where he's come to deliver the Fenner Lecture, a public science lecture that I host every year. We have one of the biggest venues in the city, Llewellyn Hall, but the response to Eddie has been so strong that I'm starting to get a little worried as to whether we'll fit everyone in. Eddie, thanks so much for joining me on the Good Life podcast. Andrew, it's a huge pleasure. Thank you. So let's start with your uh, your uh, childhood. Uh, your parents uh, moved to uh, Australia from Malaysia. Uh, how smoothly was their did their migrant experience go? When my father arrived in particular, uh, he was really in his final years of high school, uh, did his studies here and was a huge leap for his family to send someone like him here because um, all of the rest of his siblings um, were still back in Malaysia. And so he came here completely on his own. And I think that um, they were always hoping to be able to send uh, people to, you know, this world where uh, from their Chinese background within Malaysia, them being migrants there as well, mm. uh, it was a difficult thing for them to be able to secure education and employment opportunities. And so this is very much a dream come true. Uh, but of course, actually arriving here, my father actually studying in these exact halls. Well, not these, the musical halls, but <laughs> my father studied at ANU. And uh, for him to be able to, you know, gain his university qualifications and then work in Sydney uh, was, a, you know, a huge privilege for that to be able to work out in terms of, uh, you know, academic qualifications and, and getting a, a, a head around of the language and the social structure. So that worked out very well. Um, the challenge probably came later on as we were growing up, but that was a little bit after he first settled here. How uh, Chinese was your was your family? Did you uh, speak uh, Chinese at home? Did you eat lots of Chinese food? Growing up personally, uh, my media family, we always thought about ourselves as Australian. I, in fact, it was a very deliberate choice uh, from 
my mum and dad to actually make sure that we didn't grow up developing the same kind of accent that they did. That was something that was a challenge for them. And I think that they even had difficulty understanding the Australian accent. And so they wanted us to be at home here. Uh, my brother and sister did go to Chinese school, but by the time I rolled around the third of three children, I think they figured, you know what, we've had enough Saturday mornings, you know, rolling everyone out of bed early to try and go to these very long classes. So I did not even go to that, and which meant mm. that, you know, I have a very cursory understanding of the Chinese language. I can order foods. I know how to ask for the bathroom or the exit, and that's pretty much the extent of it. So growing up, that language piece was in some ways missing for me, mm. um, but we certainly identified in terms of our values, you know, um, prizing education and making sure that no matter what you did, you applied yourself fully to it. Uh, you know, applying what I now as an educator would call a growth mindset, being right. able to say, you know what, it, it, it's not a matter of natural talent or a particular gift that you might have. If you work at something, you will develop that skill. Uh, things like that really became part of our identity. So it was something that we always had in, our, in the front of our minds. It's one of these things about tiger parenting, right? You should always praise the inputs rather than the outputs. Uh, you worked really hard to, to, on that rather than well done on the outcome. It was almost to a fault, actually. I mean, one of the things that was challenging was when there was an area of life in which we didn't perhaps have natural skill, uh, you know, uh, tiger parents don't take no for an answer. It's just, no, we're going to keep on applying until, you know, we're just not going to give up. And in, in many ways, that was, uh, it's a two-edged sword, mm. you know, and it, it creates pressure. Um, I certainly remember being at, at high school and thinking, my goodness, you know, the academic caliber of, uh, of this environment is, is really something which uh, was personally very challenging. And in some ways, I didn't necessarily fit in well with. But at the same time, the benefits I gained from being an adolescent pushed toward doing things that I wouldn't have otherwise had to go at myself, but uh, just had that cultural expectation, they, they pushed me to achieve in ways that I wouldn't have um, otherwise chosen for myself. You were at primary school during the uh, mid-1990s, which is a pretty contested period for the uh, national race debate in Australia. Uh, did you find yourself experiencing much discrimination in the playground? Primary school was a very difficult experience for me at a cultural level. Uh, there were very few Asians growing up around in our area. And even though I was I was born in this country and you know, citizen by birth, I the only language I've ever known is English, uh, I didn't look like I was Australian. And so there were huge, uh, huge struggles for me growing up in that environment and not knowing how to fit in. Uh, there was certainly, you know, children can be brutal and don't don't uh, you know uh, sugarcoat any of their preconceived notions don't feel any necessary obligation to be nuanced or measured in their assessment of another human being um, there's a first judgment and uh, if they don't feel any reason to necessarily challenge that it sticks and so during primary school I was I was bullied quite intensely and made very few friends. And in many ways, that caused me to uh, try and work out who I was uh, in the context of, well, just I, I find it very difficult to get along with other people. I'm going to have to find something in my life, something that I can enjoy and something that I mm. can uh, do without without having the benefit of friends around me who identified with that. So that was very formative and it was not a joyful experience, but has also shaped the way that I as a teacher now look at the children whom I get to teach and, and think about what it is they're going through, which uh, having not uh, gone through that as a child, I might not have been aware of. Mm. 
You went to the uh, same place as I did for high school, uh, James Roos Agricultural High School. Uh, how is your agriculture, by the way? Can you uh, can you tell a Frisian from a heifer? <laughs> from a Hereford? Yeah, you know what? It's quite funny that I, I, I think, was actually one of the very last years, possibly the last year, that agriculture was made non-compulsory for the HSC in year 11. And I remember, um, I think actually it was just introduced with us. And they said, you know, if you'd like, you don't have to choose agriculture. And I remember looking at the very small number of people then who decide, elected not to take agriculture in their final year. And I thought, why would you do this? We're at an agricultural school. I still remember uh, doing going down to the plots, how much time I spent weeding, all the stinging nettles I had to endure, bringing back you know, bringing back bags of potatoes that were heavier than I was. Uh, it was it was quite an experience. And I think back to, in fact, just today, I was giving a presentation to a school and uh, I used an agricultural metaphor in explaining mathematics. So you know what? You can take the boy out of the farm, but you can never take the farm out of the boy. <laughs> and you didn't, uh, you didn't immediately love maths though, did you? Uh, when did, uh, what are your early experiences of maths at school? I would characterize myself uh, as the kind of math student then at school that I am as a cook now. So, you know, if you hand me a recipe, I can bake a pretty reasonable cake. Uh, I will follow the rest of the recipe and the instructions dutifully and create something which is, in by most regards, edible. But I do not know what baking powder does or what its purpose is. I don't know what's magical about 180 degrees Celsius or why I should set the oven at that temperature. I just know to do it and to follow those mm. steps. And when I was at school, I dutifully learned the formulas and algorithms to get most of the right answers. And I could accomplish that, but I really had no sense about the meaning mm. of all mm. of this all of these uh, subjects, algebra, trigonometry, calculus, it was all quite mysterious to me. And I treated it much as a, a black box uh, that it never grabbed me that I should, I should ask the question of what this was all about. And I just kind of did it, could get the numbers out the end, but uh, was just perplexed and really put it to one side and preferred much more to study the humanities. So coming to mathematics was something that was much later in life for me. When did it happen? When I arrived... On the doorstep of Sydney University, I had my academic transcript in hand and my enrollment form for my Bachelor of Education degree. And at the time, I had to work out, I did settle, I wanted to do secondary. And I thought, well, what subjects should I choose? And every uh, teacher who I had spoken to gave me the advice, pick the subject that you are naturally gifted in. So on my enrollment form, it said, Bachelor of Education combined with Bachelor of Arts, majoring in English and history. And so I stood there in the line to enroll because this is in the days before online enrollment. And there was a professor walking up and down all of the new students and just having conversations with each one, getting to know them. And he came to me and he took the paperwork out of my hand and he looked it up and down. And he noticed that you know while my disposition toward the subject was not visible, I had achieved reasonable marks in advanced mathematics when I was at school. And he said, look, I don't, I'm not going to force you to change your mind, but we actually have plenty of English and history teachers here in New South Wales and across Australia, in fact. Would you consider, I noticed you've done a fair bit of maths, would you consider becoming a mathematics teacher? And returning to the reason why I became a secondary teacher rather than any other kind, mm. I just absolutely fell in love with the idea of, seeing students at this very formative age 
they enter high school at age 12. They leave roughly at 18. And the amount of transformation they've gone through during that time is phenomenal. Uh, the personal and uh, philosophical and, and social change that they have experienced, mm. it's such a privilege, I think, to be able to speak to that and have a positive influence over on over many years. I went into teaching because I wanted to make a difference in the lives of students, not because I had a particular love for a subject. Yes. And so if there was a great need in mathematics, it just made sense to go in that direction because I could make a difference. And so at that moment, a very sort of watershed instant in my life, I decided to go down the rabbit hole to try to work out what this subject was about because if that was where I could make a difference, that was where I was going to go. So you've got this one uh, university professor who changes your, uh, your your decision on the spur of the moment, and then the decision to become a teacher, I understand, was shaped by a couple of uh, teachers at, at James Roos, who you saw as mentors, uh, Alan Best, uh, the music teacher, and Liesl Brown, uh, one of the agriculture teachers. How did their influence on you shape your decision to become a teacher? I think for me, the, the best thing that I learned from Mr Best and Mr Brown it's still hard for me to call them by their first days because of how formative they've been in my life. Yes. But, uh, they, they taught me that the role of a teacher is, of course, to teach a subject. But the teaching of that subject is actually more of a... It's a context and it's an environment in which you can simply care for and grow a young human being. And, you know, the, the point of music is not coming out of uh, school being able to recite Bach or Beethoven or Tchaikovsky. The point of uh, a history class is not to come out of that being able to rattle off all of the dates for when Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated and why exactly that was the cause of World War One unfolding. What it really is about is helping people have an appreciation of the world around them and understanding a way of thinking that equips them to be uh, well-rounded uh, human beings as citizens who can contribute to society. And what I learned from Mr. Brown and Mr. Best was that despite the fact that I was not a gifted musician nor a gifted uh, agriculturalist, they both nonetheless demonstrated a, a care and an attention to me as a fellow human being, which I found uh, just so profound and, and made a deep impression on me that I wanted to have that kind of opportunity in the lives of young people in the future. So your principle with, uh, with, with your students is a sort of reciprocity of respect then, that you, you respect them if they'll respect you. I think it was a, uh, there was a real light bulb moment I had when as a teacher, I actually started to realise that Many students do not treat their teachers like ordinary human beings. For example, uh, Andrew, have you done your homework? Ah, uh, well, I didn't have time. My dog ate the homework, etc., etc., etc. The kind of response that a student will give a teacher in response to that question is often simply completely deceiving them to their face. And we wouldn't do this with any other human being, mm. but we have almost different rules for engagement from students to teachers. And it dawned on me that part of why that is, is because the reverse is also true. Often teachers forget that their students are human beings first, that, you know, why are they causing issues in class? Well, probably every problem in a lesson started outside that lesson from an issue that was happening at home or in the playground. Uh, and, and treating them just as simple human beings is often the most important way to develop rapport. And then, of course, be able to engender and cultivate learning. Yeah. 
I am fascinated that uh, you weren't turned on to maths at Roos because certainly my recollection of the school was that mathematics was the dominant subject. Uh, I remember Mick Canty running the, uh, the, the maths, maths staff room. Uh, he would have all the maths teachers doing uh, maths, uh, pro throwing maths problems around during their lunch break. Uh, he would object when uh, there was inter-school sport that uh, meant that we would miss a, math a mathematics lesson. And he had that sort of just the energy and the passion about mathematics that... Uh, that I found pretty exciting um, and, and you know, it was just naturally assumed that you would do as many units of mathema mathematics as, uh, as, as you, could, you could handle. Um, but that still left you feeling like you were more of a, uh, a cook than a chemist by the sounds of things. I, th I think that I, I, I remember Mr. Canty, he had become the deputy principal at the time that I arrived at the school. And I still remember that culture was very strong. I now look back and I think about, I mean, my, my teachers that I had were, you know, eminently skilled at their craft and and very gifted mathematicians but in some ways i wonder looking back in retrospect and this is conjecture but uh, i've had parts of this emphasized in my own experience as a teacher i wonder if in some ways their strength in mathematics for a student like me ended up being a bit of a handicap uh, part of my experience was i would sometimes not understand something and in response to my confusion, sometimes the response was, Eddie, how can you not understand? It's mm. it's obvious to the rest of the class. It's obvious to me. And, you know, that ability to empathize with a learner who is struggling to wrap their head around something is its own skill. And in fact, it becomes harder and harder to do the better a mathematician in some ways you become because it does somewhat divorce you from that point of view where um, something is completely brand new and very difficult to wrap your head around. And in many ways, I've tried to use that as an asset in my classroom. It's every different teacher has their own strengths, but I feel like one of mine is the ability to persevere through that struggle and to present that struggle to a student as something which is worth embracing and still worth pursuing through even if it might feel uncomfortable to begin with. Now when you're in year 10 you your mother uh, contracted lung cancer and, and passed away quite suddenly that must have been incredibly disruptive on your uh, on your studies at that stage. It was a difficult uh, uh, journey to try and work out. I mean, for an adolescent, 10, 11, and 12 is a difficult time emotionally for most teenagers trying to work out who they are and their own identity, uh, where they fit in the whole social order. Uh, and so to add on to that, you know, becoming, uh, you know, one of the primary carers for my mother, that really did send me for a tailspin. And I still remember looking at my, my array of subjects and having my year advisor say to me, look, uh, I, I know a lot of your marks and ranks and so on. They, they look like they're going down down the gurgle right now, frankly. But you need to know, you know, you need to have the confidence from, from my perspective as a teacher, having watched many people, many young people like yourself go through this journey. We know you're going to be a success. I know it's very difficult for you. It's much easier to say that than to accept it. Um, but have confidence. We, we, we see that you have a we, you have a, a disposition, an ability to relate to people. You'll be fine once you come out the other end of this tunnel. And, you know, the HSC year for me was um, an incredibly difficult journey that I wouldn't 
I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But at the same time, it has very much formed the person who I am today. I think that uh, suffering is something everyone goes through and it's where we grow. Uh, very few people can look at the, the sunny, wonderful, successful times of their life and say, that was when I learned lessons about who I was mm. and, and, and gained skills about how to uh, do things that matter in the world. It's, it's during the dark times. So while I didn't enjoy that in any way, uh, it, it's now given me a perspective on the world that also helps me, especially when many of the students who I teach are going through similar challenges. Um, I get to be able to walk through that with them and say, I know what that's like. Yes. And I know you're going to come through this as well. Then a decade or so later, when you were a teacher in uh, 2012, I understand one of your students uh, contracted pancreatic cancer and uh, uh, you then came upon an ingenious solution for helping that student uh, through, through keeping up with their studies as, uh, uh, as they tried to manage uh, their cancer. Tell us about that. It's very kind of you to call it ingenious. I would call it a happy accident uh, that I wanted to make sure this student who was, as a result of said cancer, uh, missing huge amounts of school, I wanted him to still have the ability to participate in class. And one of the tricky things about mathematics, uh, it is... I think one of the most beautiful things about the subject, but also causes problems, is that all of the knowledge and skills in this subject is so interwoven. And as a consequence, if you take one piece out of the puzzle, uh, to change the metaphor, the whole house of cards roundly collapses. If you do not understand uh, fractions, it is very difficult to master, for example, trigonometry, which is based on fractions. And if you don't have trigonometry, then calculus is completely confusing to you. And so... I knew this student, by virtue of missing a few weeks here, a few weeks there, was going to have so much difficulty wrapping his head around subsequent learning in mathematics if he was going to be able to make a recovery, mm. that uh, it was going to be almost a sentence to end his mathematical career. And I knew this boy loved learning very much. And so I figured, you know what? You know, I, I'm not the kind of person who can understand a textbook just by reading from one line to the next. I need someone to explain these things to me, to sit beside me and guide me. Maybe if I could do something like that for this child, that would be helpful to him. And so I took the phone out of my pocket. This was back in the days when the first phones were introduced that could really take some quite decent video quality. So it happened at a very coincidental time. Mm. And off of those early videos, uh, I put them on I put them on YouTube just because that was the easiest way to do it. And was delighted and immensely surprised to find that people around the country and people even around the world were also uh, tuning in because it was scratching a need that was there. What is it about the way you teach maths that's different from others? I've been trying to answer this question for many years, to be honest, because I don't feel as though uh, one of the great things about being a teacher is being part of a, a wonderful collegiate profession where there are many teachers who I could point to who I would very quickly say, here's a better mathematics teacher than me, than me uh, and certainly has a finer art and, and a great skill that, that I do not have. But if I could point to uh, one thing that maybe uh, is maybe less common than uh, what you find in a normal mathematics class. Because at school I loved the humanities, as I mentioned before, I almost, I was this close to becoming an English teacher. Uh, one of the things that just is part of my natural vocabulary is that everything I do, I try my best to obey a very simple rule of storytelling, which is that almost every good story out there follows a very simple three-act 
structure. The three acts are setup, conflict, resolution. If you do not set up a story and introduce the characters and the environment, then you have no reason to be invested mm. in this mm. story and you don't care. If there is no conflict, the story is boring. There's no reason to think oh, this is entertaining or interesting or, or there's a tension which I, I want to see resolved. And lastly, the resolution, if there is no sound click that makes all of the story pieces come together in a satisfying way, you leave confused and, and ungratified. I try to make every single one of my lessons follow that three-act structure to have a setup. Why do we care about the this particular formula or kind of geometry? I want to make sure there's a conflict. I want to plant a seed in your mind that makes you think, wait a second, how can it be that every single right angle triangle in the universe, even ones that don't exist that you could just think up tomorrow, they their sides all share this very simple relationship really how could that be possible that they all in all their diversity could have this unity and then i want to make sure that there is a satisfying payoff the pythagoras theorem is not just a given it was a thunderclap of insight for each of the sides to have a, a square drawn on that side and to show that the areas of those squares have a very simple and elegant relationship I want my lessons to, to exhibit that quality. And that's something which most, most mathematics lessons do not, and it's unique. And I think that story is a natural language of the human soul, and I think that's why it often grabs people. So you seem like you're almost uh, a history teacher in, in mathematics teacher's clothes. Uh, the, the, way you, the way you describe it is exactly the way I think of as the best history lessons I've ever learned. I do think that there is a unity and a parallel between the key learning areas like history or mathematics mm. or visual arts that often we sometimes forget. I think the people in the Renaissance understood this. We didn't say Da Vinci was just a scientist or just an artist or just a mathematician. He was all these things. He was a poet. He was a, he was a polymath. And we put all these things together in a single human being. But today, I think we draw a false dichotomy between the creative and performing arts and uh, the STEM disciplines. And I think that's a, uh, a unity that I'm trying to recover. And I think that it's something which students benefit from when they see the connections between all these disciplines. So you're a, a parent of uh, three children. Uh, you must think a bit uh, about what parents can do to try and inculcate a, a love of maths and understanding of maths. Uh, I think many parents feel as though they're doing a bit on the reading side, but they don't really do as much on the math side as they'd like to do. How would you advise parents who are trying to be better mathematics teachers and inspirers to their children? I have a long list of pieces of advice that I've uh, accumulated over the years to parents, but if I could keep it very brief, uh, the first thing I'd say is take the opportunity, particularly with young children, but with older children too, to notice all the mathematics around you. Numbers and patterns are everywhere. And I think that often we let it slide past us and it's hidden in plain sight. Now, children don't realize that mathematics is, you know, the, the, the dynamic that animates their life. Mm. Uh, from when they wake up in the morning and look at the weather report to when they go to the shops and they make a purchase based on what they think is the most affordable. At every moment, mathematics is there. So. Firstly, notice the mathematics around them. Secondly, and again, this is something that probably is leading towards primary age children, but play games with your children uh, and do puzzles with them. I, I remember reading a book about Sudoku, the Japanese number puzzle. And in that book, talking about games like Sudoku, puzzles like Sudoku, 
The author said, puzzles are mathematics by stealth. We can often engage with a whole amount of mathematical thinking without even realizing it mm. just by playing a game like chess or Monopoly. Each of them actually has mathematical DNA all the way through it. And perhaps lastly, I would say, you know, many parents had a very negative experience of mathematics growing up. And the passing on of that negative experience can be hereditary, mm. not because it's genetic, not because, oh, I'm I'm just not a math person, therefore, you know, this is what my son or daughter is consigned to be. But that attitude that you demonstrate is something as simple as even saying, mathematics, I was a math person or I'm not a math person. That very implicitly says there is such a thing as a person who's born to do mathematics and the rest of us just will never be able to cut yes. it. We now know through the benefit of neuroscience that there is no such thing as a, there's no physiological difference between the brain of a person who excels in mathematics and someone who does not. It is all about the attitude that you take toward it, the willingness or unwillingness you have to persevere in developing your understanding. So I think that that attitude, very simple things that uh, we can say in the home, in the car, you know, we're Australian. If our kid is not very good at throwing a ball or, 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 or hitting something with a bat, we say, go and do it more and develop that skill. But with mathematics, we seem to draw the opposite conclusion. Oh, didn't very get, get a very good mark in that test. Just don't worry about it. You, you can focus on something mm, else at school. Mm. I think that's a mistake. And giving that, that attitude of perseverance to our children, I think, is really critical. Mathematics really is a, a young person's game. I mean, you're uh, you're in your thirties, and uh, and that would be old for uh, for, for some, some mathematics departments. You know, the Fields Medal seems to go to to very young achievers, whereas the Nobel Prize tends to go to people with quite a bit of grey hair. Uh, why is it that that maths th those maths breakthroughs are so frequently made by uh, young bucks and uh, young women? It is really interesting. I mean, a lot of people describe the Fields Medal as the Nobel Prize of mathematics, not recognizing that while it is a high honour, in many ways it is the opposite of the Nobel Prize because for the for the uninitiated you know, the Nobel Prize is often about representing a life's work um, hence the the skew towards the older uh, generations but the Nobel the the Fields Medal rather is really about number one recognizing those flashes of inspiration mm, that, that, mm. that often younger mathematicians make but it also is about giving someone a leg up into the professional mathematical community I do think one of the reasons why those inspirational leaps of logic you know uh, Isaac Newton for example was famous for how young he was I think it was 21 when he invented calculus or depending on who you ask uh, Gottfried Leibniz invented calculus uh, one of the things that's challenging about mathematics is that it is often about imagining worlds that do not exist and it is very difficult to imagine a world that does not exist when you have been shown that it exists in a particular way. Um, the way that I would compare this is if you're watching a movie and you are you know, enjoying the experience as the first characters appear and the music comes in and then someone beside you says, as a new character appears who you do not know, someone beside you says, that's the bad guy. They're going to, they're the mastermind behind the whole plot. And suddenly your entire experience of the movie has been ruined. Right. You can't unsee everything that you're about to watch will be framed by the lens of thinking of this character as sinister and having a motive. And when it comes to mathematics, when we learn ideas, like for example, you're not supposed to be able to uh, take the square root of a negative number 
What's the square root? It's a number that you multiply by itself to give you the result you started with. So the square root of 81 is 9, because 9 times 9 gives you 81. Centuries of mathematicians, and even people today, learn you're not allowed to take the square root of a negative number. What number can you multiply by itself that gives you negative 4? Negative 2 times negative 2, those negatives cancel out. You don't get negative 4. But if you're willing to push on that and question that assumption, in fact, the ability to take the square roots of negative numbers gave birth to a whole branch of mathematics that we now call complex numbers. And these numbers are vital for the conducting of mathematics to do with electrical signals, to do with receiving uh, radiation and being able to interpret that, as, mm. interpret that as a sensible thing from a satellite millions of kilometers away. Uh, complex numbers required an insight that that shattered all of the assumptions, the frame that we had developed mathematically that younger mathematicians are able to do because they are able to think outside the box not knowing that the box is even there. And I guess there are certain achievers who kind of cut against what, I, what I'm saying. I remember one of my favourite lines in mathematics, I think it was the guy who solved Fermat's last theorem, Andrew Wiles, who said that he knew he was going to do it he just didn't know whether he would uh, have enough years in order to get there. Uh, so it was a question of his brain racing, racing against his, uh, his, his body there. Mm. Um, and that, uh, that lovely devotion to, uh, to, 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 a, to, to a result. Um, do you engage a lot with uh, professional mathematicians now? Increasingly, I have the privilege of being able to work with career mathematicians. Mm. And for me, that's a huge priv- uh, joy. I, uh, I think that it's really important as a teacher to maintain the posture of a learner. I think it's it's far too easy to become comfortable in things that we've taught over and over again. And I think students can tell the difference between someone who has uh, you know, just actively learned something or someone who's become stale and forgotten the joy of discovery. And so, you know, I, I, I'm delighted that I get to at, say, for example, uh, my alma mater, Sydney University, uh, they have just recently actually uh, founded the uh, Sydney Mathematical Research Institute. And I'm just delighted at the opportunity to be able to work with uh, phenomenal minds like those. It's something that keeps me going and gives me the energy and vibrancy to make sure that I am present and, uh, and still engaged and excited with my own students. How are you finding being a local hero? Uh, you must have felt the, uh, the obligations of the world uh, descend upon you uh, fairly quickly. How are you managing to balance your teaching with all of the obligations there, the massive increase in your YouTube subscribers without letting that uh, go, go to your head? Uh, how, how's all that balance working out for you? Ah, uh, Look, uh, there's a few questions tucked in there, but uh, I love that your questions presuppose the fact that I have established a way of balancing. It has been a tough challenge. Uh, I should say the first thing is because I've been able to do any of these things uh, has been because of my eminently capable wife. She, uh, you know, having three young children is a a mission and a task all of its own. And um, without her, uh, her her ingenuity and her perseverance, none of it would be possible. I wouldn't be able to sit across from you right now. Um, But in addition to that, I mean, you talked about, you know, the, what happens when you have a a rapidly, uh, a very suddenly increased profile and, and how to stay grounded in that way. I mean, for me, I think that Firstly, having my own children who don't care about any of the accolades or awards. I'm just dad to them. Uh, That's a really important thing. But also just the, 
I guess the immediacy of being a teacher and an educator, uh, I had some people who very kindly um, said to me after things like the Australian of the Year Awards, uh, as a compliment, they said things like, we always knew you were destined for bigger things. I know what they meant, and it's very kind of them. I take their compliment. But I respectfully disagree because I don't think there is anything bigger than having a deep and profound influence on the life of even a single young person and being able to have the privilege of altering the trajectory of their life, which I've been able to do. Um, you know, I, my mind boggles at the fact that I've been able to do this multiple times. And I guess what keeps me grounded is to know that you know, uh, when I'm there in the classroom, none of the accolades or the amazing people um, like yourself that I get to meet, none of that means anything. What matters is who I am to that person in the classroom. Can I help them learn something that they're struggling with? Mm. Um, a- am I able to open their eyes to the fact that they're more capable in mathematics than they often would dare to dream? Yes. That work with individuals is what makes me tick and it's what keeps me close to the ground, I think. Eddie, what advice would you give to your teenage self? When I was particularly aged 15 and 16, I had a lot of trouble trying to work out who I was. And I think that, I guess that's not a a unique struggle. Um, I, I remember trying to look at my friends who were popular, thinking about what it was that made them, you know, uh, I had a I had a really close friend who was just intensely funny, was just magnetic in a crowd, and I just thought, oh, if I could be funny, that would be great. I thought, how do I how do I develop in being funny? And you can probably guess, I never really developed a huge way in trying to. It was just not a fit. It was not where my personality led me towards, and it took me many many years, even after I'd become a teacher, frankly, to be able to say. Every person has their weird idiosyncrasies mm-hmm. and strange, unique gifts and opportunities and just embrace that and lean into that. And don't worry, it, it takes time to find that. I think my advice to my teenage self is be patient and know that that's not going to come overnight. You need to be willing to try a whole bunch of things and for them to be disastrous and then to work out from each of those, you know what? I found the thing that uh, I can make a difference. I can serve people in. Uh, it, it took me many, many wrong turns, but that's okay. Making all of those turns was how I discovered where I need to be. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to believe that there was such a thing as a maths brain. And we alluded to this before, but I, it's it's a, a myth that still endures today. And I think we... I, I remember very keenly uh, sitting in my mathematics class and pondering what it looked like for other friends to just instantly be able to arrive at a solution for something. And me thinking, how did you do that? You're just a different kind of person to me. Um, I remember uh, sitting across from a friend of mine who, this is back in the days before ATARs, so I received a UAI in between the TER and the ATAR, and uh, my friend scored a UAI of 100 and I remember the, the the horror that I experienced when she told me this. I thought, I thought you were my friend. Now I discover you're this unnatural being who can, you know, just ace exams effortlessly. And I looked at her as qualitatively different to me. I thought that she's mm. just got a mind that I could never gain. And I remember being in school and, and, and seeing as a teacher, uh, you know, there are, there are 
classes, we, we grade the classes because you are a different kind of person to these people. Uh, you know, we, we label children according to the, what their perceived mathematics mm. ability is. And I, I, I've now completely changed my mind about that because I actually think that anyone with the right amount of time and good guidance can develop anything mathematically uh, so long as they're willing to persevere that through that. I, I should point out, not everyone can develop at the same pace. Some people do uh, gain those skills much more immediately than others, but I think it's a mistake to think I'm taking longer to develop this skill, therefore I'm never going to be able to get there. I think anyone really can. When are you most happy? I'm most happy when I am uh, rolling around the floor with my children. Uh, I think that it's it's such a joy to be able to see. I, I grew up um, being the youngest uh, youngest son of uh, my father, who was the youngest son in his family. And so all of my cousins and relatives and what have you were all significantly older than me. And I didn't really discover the joy of young children until mm. I had my own. And it's just been, you know, it's beautiful. It's, it's a really it's it had far too quickly is racing away from me that my children are no longer babies uh, but it is such a joy to discover their personalities and to have a conversation with them and just to be playful what's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy I think that uh, I, I, I am a, uh, even though most people wouldn't guess at it because this happens to most teachers, um, I'm actually an intense introvert. Um, I remember doing a Myers-Briggs personalities test uh, when I was younger and uh, in that there's the extroversion, introversion spectrum. Mm. And uh, because I'm morbidly curious, every few years I redo the test. And even though you know, other it's things, test validity is very low, right? Yes, I, I, I'm very conscious of that. Uh, one of the things that it, it there are constant changes throughout uh, the years, but one of the things that remains remarkably consistent is I'm always, if it can be stated this way, I'm always an 85, 90 percent introvert. Uh, and so, being a teacher, you develop a whole set of extroverted skills. But who I am, uh, you know, fundamentally requires, yeah, some time that needs to be guarded to be by myself, to read yeah. a book, listen to a podcast like this, uh, to be able to um, jealously uh, protect that time and, and make sure the phone is off, make sure social media is far, far away, um, to be able to say this time uh, is going to be for my brain, to be able to say, you need to you need to rest. You need to recover yourself. I find that that's really important. And the times that I've struggled to do that, I've really felt the consequences. And when I've been able to do that well, um, that's when I've always flourished in life. And is your faith important to you too, and keeping you grounded? I'm a Christian, and I remember growing up. Uh, as a seven or eight year old calling myself that, but not really in some ways, just like mathematics, not really understanding what that meant. And when I was at high school, probably around age 15 or 16, looking at people who were only a couple of years older than me and realizing that their faith actually made an instrumental difference in the way they spoke, the decisions that they made day to day, how they spent their time. And that for me was uh, a light bulb moment that uh, has been, uh, a force for change in my life that has constantly uh, guided my choices, my decisions, my priorities. I mean, for me, fundamentally, the reason I'm a teacher is because I believe the reason I exist is to serve. And that's, uh, you know, when we talk about being grounded, you know, it's easy to be humble when you realize that all of the great things that you have been able to receive or achieve are things that have been given to you. 
things that you have not earned, but things that you get to enjoy as a privilege and get to pass on to others. So it's absolutely a central part of my life. Finally, Eddie, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Wow, that is a really tough question to answer. I'd have to say, um, my mother, who passed away 14 years ago, um, it's unsurprising that someone would pick their parent, I guess. But when I look back on her life, and it was, I, 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 I thought to myself, you know, it's a, it was a tragedy. I lost her when I was 18 years old. And I became for a, a, a serious amount of time quite bitter about that, um, thinking, you know, if only I'd had her for more years and could deepen that relationship. It took me some time to realize, you know, death is a tragedy no matter when it happens. It doesn't matter whether you lose your parents when they are old or young. Um, it's always wrong. It's always a, a, a breaking of the way things should be. But when I think back to her, and she, she was the person who said to me, Yes, people are going to judge you for your appearance and they are going to treat you harshly sometimes because of that. But your role is not to reciprocate. Your role is to endure and to become a character that is better than that, which requires you to, to look on that and to say, that's sad for those people. That, in fact, is an expression of weakness when people seek to show themselves as powerful by bullying others. Um, it was her who said, uh, whatever it is that you do, apply yourself and work your very hardest at it. That is the best gift that you can give to others, even if it's something as, as humble and simple as teaching mathematics. Um, pour your heart into that because that's when you can become a gift to, to the community that you're going to be a part of. I think that she, uh, more than any single person, formed my ethical framework looking out at the world. And so I hope I hope the life that I'm living now um, is doing her proud. Eddie Wu, a teacher, father and numbers whiz, thanks for joining us in the Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.